Let us open the inspired and preserved words of the living God to the 8th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8. Suffer me a little to speak on behalf of my Maker and your Maker. We are dealing with the transferable or participatory or communicable attributes of God and today brings us to the hatred of God. One of His attributes clearly taught in Scripture, almost entirely ignored and rejected by men. They have made a presumption fatal to their lives that God by necessity must love men, that God by necessity must love His creatures, that God has within His nature the necessity of loving. We understand things differently because we read the Bible instead of following popular opinion and trying to create a cotton candy God. God is love, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16. Most of those that say God is love wouldn't be able to tell you what testament that statement is found in. We know where it's found, but we also know that God is holy and He can only love holy objects. God has hatred, God does hate, and God hates more than sin. God hates sinners as well. The Bible teaches us so. As we learn this attribute of God today, as we are reminded of it today since we should already know it, it clears him of compromise in a thinking man's mind, and it will purify and enhance his love toward us. Because to think that God loves those that we read about in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, a few minutes ago, as much as those in Revelation 14, 12, makes His love frivolous, superficial, confusing, contradictory, and impotent. That means lacking all power to accomplish any good or end toward the objects of His love. If we understand the hatred of God, we understand Revelation 14, 9 through 12 very easily. And we thank and bless the Holy God for choosing us to be His saints in the 12th verse. Hate is to hold in very strong dislike, to detest, to bear malice to. It is the opposite of to love. Hatred is the emotion or feeling of hate. It is active dislike, detestation of a thing or a person, enmity, ill will, and malevolence. The doctrine is hated and rejected for smile. God loves you is what men want to believe about the God of heaven. They have made their choice. They do not care what Scripture says. It comforts their little rebellious and deceitful hearts to think that God must love them or that God does love them and that God loves everyone and that God couldn't hate or that God wouldn't hate. And so set are they in their ways that if you try to explain to them the hatred of God, they will say, if God is like that, I don't want anything to do with Him. God will remember that statement in the day of judgment. They say God cannot hate. We shall see. 
It's not for God's character that they are jealous or concerned. It is for the selfishness of their existence that they are concerned. You will never hear these people, and I have made this point so many times, I fear repeating myself, but you will never hear them defending God's hatred of the devil. Or God's love of the devil. It's not for God's character that they're concerned when they say, God cannot hate. It's because that they are so desperate in need for God to love them without them having a sacrifice made for them or for them ever keeping His commandments. They will never defend God's love of the devil. They don't mind God hating the devil. It's that they don't want to be hated. And so their easiest solution to that is, let's create a God that loves everyone at all times, no matter what. The consequences of this heresy, the consequences of the heresy that God loves everyone is so far-reaching it deserves and and needs a study of its own. It has so corrupted men's concept of God's holiness. It's so corrupted the importance of living a holy and righteous life. It has so confused true Bible evangelism and so forth and so on. It has so messed up the presentation of the gospel and proper Bible preaching. It would take a whole study itself. Suffice it to say that the methods now used in most churches across America come from the doctrine, God loves everyone. Therefore, He doesn't care how we worship Him. We can do it any way we want. It doesn't matter how you live. God loves the sodomite as much as He loves anyone. And so forth and so on until it, until it turns into a crescendoing noise or a rolling snowball of heresy. And it has ruined most Christianity because they have dared to preach against the Word of God about the love of God without ever daring to even touch on His hatred. And His hatred is revealed very plainly. There's about 33 verses in the Bible where it says God hates, and about 12 of them are things that God hates, and about 20 of them are people that God hates. And we need to remember that. And we're not going to be able to cover them all this morning, and much more has been said, could be said, and will be said. But we will consider some things about it. The consequences of not understanding this doctrine are not to know God. I delight in the hatred of God. It rejoices my heart to know that God hates His enemies. I cannot imagine serving a king that does not hate his enemies, that hate him and that hate me. I delight in him. And if it's in the Bible, I rejoice in the doctrine, and that's all I need for it to be in the Bible. Forgive me for even mentioning my rationalization first, but my spirit loves the hatred of God. And I'm so thankful that God saved me from that cotton candy caricature of Him that the world created. I love His hatred. Because if He doesn't hate, then His love means nothing. If He doesn't hate, then He's not holy. If He doesn't hate injustice, then He can't be just. Because a just king hates injustice. And a holy God hates sin and sinners. I want to remind you that God is not going to cast sin into the lake of fire. God is going to cast sinners into the lake of fire. His fury and His wrath is going to torment them. Sin cannot be tormented. It is men, devils and angels that will be tormented. And the smoke of their torment will ascend up into the presence of the Lamb. You can think anything you want to about the Lamb, but the Lamb reigns in heaven. And the Lamb, when He sits on His throne, as we just sang in one of those songs, 
The world, the heavens and the earth will flee from that face. Though he be called the Lamb, he was the Lamb slain, but he is also the Lion, the tribe of Judah. He is the High King of Heaven. He is the blessed and only potentate. And he will trample the fierceness of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And he will sprinkle himself with the blood of his enemies. This is the word of the Lord to us. Hate crimes are now despised in our nation. Our nation has had the gall to pass hate legislation. Meaning that if you hate when you kill somebody, it's a really bad crime. You know, if you just go ahead and kill them while you love them, that's okay. But if you kill them when you hate them, that's just terrible. They've tried to get rid of the word hate. They've tried to teach that the word hate is bad. They hate the word hate. And I'm still trying to figure that one out. You know, when they apply their hate crimes, they only mean when a black is killed or a sodomite is killed. They would never do that when a white is killed or when a Christian is killed. They don't know what the word hate means except that they hate the righteous. And the Bible says they've always hated the righteous. And they'll always hate the righteous. Hate is a good and a holy thing when that hatred is directed toward evil and evildoers. It's a good thing. It can be called perfect hatred. Isn't that a wonderful description in the Bible? We want to have perfect hatred. God has perfect hatred. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God has never sinned, nor is he tempted in that direction. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He's of purer eyes than to ever exercise evil. When God has hatred, it is different from the hatred that you have when your hatred is out of your flesh, when it's out of jealousy or pride or foolish things of your emotional passions. But I want to remind you that my God is the most selfish being in the universe, and rightly so, and I delight in Him because of that. He created all things for Himself. Do you know that is the ultimate act of selfishness? He created all things for Himself. If everything you do is for yourself, what would we say of you? You're selfish. I love God for doing that. I know that I am nothing but a creation for His pleasure and His glory and for Himself. And He deserves that. So when He hates anything that does not give Him all the glory and purpose and honor that He created for, He is perfectly righteous in doing so. Hate is a good thing. God's hatred and the doctrine of the hatred of God is a matter of revelation. And I do not mean the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the 66th book in a Baptist Bible. I mean the revelation of God revealing His will and the truth and the wisdom of reality to us by His Scriptures. God's hatred is not a doctrine of rationalization. We don't rationalize it or figure it out by any scientific method or any mental process. God's hatred is not a matter of popularization. We don't care what men may think about it, and we don't care what a small minority we might be in for believing it. We don't believe that God's hatred is the result of romanticization. It is the world's idea of love that is a result of romanticization. And that is to romanticize the concept of God and love. Because they don't understand it. 
because they won't submit themselves to revelation. We're in Isaiah chapter 8 where we turned a few moments ago and the 20th verse tells us to the law and to the testimony. Isaiah 8:20 to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Right. We believe what we believe because God has revealed it to us by his word. God's hatred is a doctrine of revelation. It is not rationalization, or nor do we arrive at it by any other method than read and believe. God said it, that settles it. God hates. God hates sin, and God hates sinners. The subject evokes some of the strongest emotions in people. Because so many stake their faith, their lives, their future, on the fact that God loves them all. This love of God, some of you are not aware of the trends taking place in Christianity. I want you to understand that the fastest growing doctrine among those who call themselves Christians is universalism. Meaning, God saves everyone. Is it hard for you to figure out where that doctrine came from? It comes from the doctrine of God loving everyone. Because it is impossible, and Arminians prove their entire insanity when they teach that God loves everyone, but yet He subjects most of those that He loves to an eternal torment of fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. Universalism. Can you believe that? You know, for a while it was just, where have the fire and brimstone preachers gone? That meant that there was no one preaching the existence of hell anymore. But then they have slid even further left from that to teach that everyone's going to be saved anyway, and there isn't a hell. Not only do we neglect the subject in the pulpit by not preaching it, but now we deny its existence because there isn't one. Hell, according to Robert Schuller, and he's typical in the, in the way that he imagines false doctrine, Hell is you living this life without enough self-esteem. When the Bible condemns self-esteem, we are to esteem one another better than ourselves. But that's Robert Schuller, and that's what you get from teaching a religion of getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and smiling and telling yourself how beautiful you are and that God loves you. I want to remind you that Bible evangelism knows nothing of this kind of a doctrine. I showed you last Lord's Day from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, that Paul's evangelistic method was knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. It's not knowing the love of God we seduce men. It's knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade them to repent and turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And when they do that, then we can say, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, God has loved you with an everlasting love. When you read the book of Acts, which has 28 chapters of the evangelistic methods of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, there isn't one occurrence of the word love in any of its forms in that entire book. The apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, or the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill are going to preach the judgment of God. 
And God proved that He is sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to judge the world according to Paul's preaching to those Greek philosophers by raising Him from the dead. This subject evokes such strong emotions, people will say all sorts of crazy and wild things because they can't imagine it. They've never heard it preached, and they have just basked themselves in the fact that God loves everyone. God unconditionally loves everyone. God has to love everyone. It's part of His nature because after all, and I repeat myself now, God is love. It evokes wild fantasies in their minds. They will say God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But that isn't taught in the Bible. The Bible teaches God hates the sin, and God hates the sinners. It is so true and so overwhelmingly true that God hates every sinner outside of Christ. God hates every sinner outside of Christ. Every man and creature that has ever sinned outside of Christ, God hates. Well, how do I get into Christ? God put you in Christ before the world began that you would be holy and without blame before Him in love. In love. God hates all sinners and He'll always hate all sinners considered as sinners. Sinners in Christ are His chosen adopted people made accepted in the Beloved. And He loves them because He chose to set His love on them by putting them in Christ where He could love them. For without being in Christ, He could not love them. And it is our highest calling. And it should be our most pressing duty this day and every day of our lives to make our calling and election sure that we might know that the love of God is upon us, around us, underneath us, and preserving us to His heavenly kingdom. It's an insane accusation against the character of God to say that God hates sin but loves the sinner. If God hates sin, which is the violation of His will, then what does He have toward those that com- that perpetuate violations of His will but the same thing that He has toward the sin? It's impossible to separate the two. The Bible doesn't know about it. Men make this up. He's going to cast sinners into hell, not sin. Hell is the wrath and torment of the presence of Almighty God and the Lamb. What an incense. If it gives incense to God, and it tells us in the Bible the incense, the smoke of their torment is going to ascend up into the presence of God for all eternity, then it's incense. And I rejoice in it. Because the Bible says it is true of the God of the Bible. I love the God of the Bible. I grieve every day when I step out on my deck to take a phone call and see that beautiful blue sky and that beautiful sun shining and realizing that God is sending that toward the wicked and yet they, ha- they, God is not in all their thoughts. The only thought I have when I see that blue sky is, as I've told you recently, and this is me and the Lord, so don't get bothered by it. You gotta be kidding me. If you gave me one billion crayons in a crayon box, I couldn't pick a blue that blue. That's bluer than blue. I don't even know what color to call it. And I love him for it. And I want to know that those who reject him hate him and set themselves against him, that there's a God in heaven that is going to have the last laugh. And you had that read to you last Lord's Day by one of our young men from the second psalm. 
that God shall have them in derision who set themselves against him. But no one believes that either, do they? That God laughs. And who does he laugh at? Those that he loves? He laughs at those that he hates because they think that they can cast his bands asunder and his cords away from them. And he says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Isaiah 8.20 tells us that it's by revelation. So let's get that revelation. Let's look at God hating some things. Isaiah chapter 1. You're close by. Isaiah chapter 1. This is God condemning the ceremonial worship of his own people. And what he thinks of worship that is not involving your heart and your soul and your commitment and your priorities. If this is not the most important part of your week, then you better make it the most important part of your important part of your week right now while I'm preaching. Right now, this moment. Isaiah 1 verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And it goes on. There's verses before those and there's verses after those describing God's hatred and His despising of ceremonial worship that does not involve the hearts and righteousness of His people. So God hates things. God hates sin. And these are God's own people. And these things that they're doing that He listed there in verses 13 and 14 are His commandments. But they're His commandments being done without a pure life and a fervent heart. Look at Isaiah 61 and verse 8. We're looking at a few examples of God hating things. God hating sins. Isaiah 61 and verse 8. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their God hates robbery for burnt offering. Those who do not bring their best nor bring what they rightfully have or rightfully owe Him, God hates is the point that we're looking for. Continue to go into the minor prophets and look for the little book of Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. And verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Do you know how many people take comfort in the fact that they get up on Sunday morning and in the old days put on a suit or what they called their Sunday best and went to church? That that was their religious duty and that that pleased God. They are so misunderstanding of God. Look what the Bible says. I hate. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 21. I despise your feast days. I despise your worship services. They mean nothing to me. Because they're done ritualistically and ceremonially. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Obviously I must cut the number of verses short. I pulled out of our archives a tract that I wrote in the first year of my ministry. It's over here on the table. Bible proof that God hates all sinners. 
It was such, such a loving dose of the gospel. But it is. You know, once you understand about 20 points of God's hatred, then the love of God is precious indeed. Amen. It's glorious. Oh, it's overwhelming to think that God loves those in hell as much as those in heaven blows my mind. But that's what the entire Christian world believes, except for a few exceptions. Incredible that God shows His love by tormenting you in a lake of fire and brimstone for eternity. Incredible! But that's how insane they are. They have never thought rationally or connectedly or logically about their doctrine. They want that soundbite so bad for God so loved the world. They've never thought about what the world might mean. They've never thought about the context of John 3.16. They've never realized that there's 31,100 other verses in the Bible. They think that's the gospel in a nutshell, as they call it. Only a nut would believe that. The gospel requires all 31,101 verses to be the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And that's the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's more than John 3.16. That also includes John chapter 5 and 6 and 8 and 10 and 17 where he lays bare the doctrine that he only chose some. They are called his sheep. They are the ones the Father gave him, and he'll not lose a single one of them. And they're the ones that he gave himself for on the cross in John 3.16 that they would never perish. Revelation chapter 2. Somebody will say, well, that was just Old Testament verses you were using. Thank you for saying that and accusing me of the crime. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6. Jesus Christ, you should have this in the red writing in your Bibles, if you have a red letter edition Bible. Revelation 2.6, speaking to the church at Ephesus, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That was a false sect in the days of the early church. They hated it at Ephesus, that doctrine. And Jesus Christ hated it as well, and said so. Verse 15 of the same chapter to another church. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So God hates sins and God hates things. God hates. It's in His nature. We can see it. The Bible says so. If God loves truth, then He has to hate error. If God loves wisdom, then He has to hate folly. If God loves righteousness, then He hates unrighteousness. If He loves justice, He hates injustice. That should be obvious to you. And if you don't hate injustice, then you really don't love justice. You're a pretender. You're a compromiser. A truly righteous king hates criminals and their crimes. Look at Proverbs chapter 6 as we look at God hating sins and God hating things. Proverbs chapter 6, God does hate. Hatred is one of the attributes of God. And it's one of the attributes that we ought to have ourselves. So we call it, as our fathers have often called it, a communicable attribute, meaning that God is able and does communicate it to His children as well. Or we call it a transferable attribute because He transfers some of it to us in our regeneration. Or we call it a participatory attribute 
because we are made partakers of the divine nature. And this is part of the divine nature that we're able to partake of, hating evil and evildoers. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. When you read the abomin- the word abomination in the Bible, that is to hate. It's another expression for hatred. It's to abominate a thing. It's to despise it. And so it says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Here they are, a proud look. Remember that the next time you get haughty. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. Think about all the abortionists and those who support it. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations every time you have a fantasy. A sexual fantasy. Let's help you out since you might be trying to avoid me. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift and running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. Those seven things God hates. But I want you to notice as you go down through the list, the Holy Spirit doesn't make a difference between hating the sin or the sinner. Let's see if we can follow. A proud look. Let's call that the sin. A lying tongue. Now that's part of your body. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's part of you. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. It's not the wicked imaginations that God hates. It's the heart that devises them that God hates. Feet, that's part of you, that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness is all of you that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord. It is not that God hates the sowing of discord. It is that God hates he that soweth discord. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word. We believe every word of it. We're compelled to believe every word of it. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Luke 4 and verse 4. So we have introduced to us by this passage that people would go to to say that God hates things because the word things is used in verse 16, so it includes the seven sins, but by the terminology used, it includes the seven perpetrators of those things as well. And so we have that introduced to us, and thus we need to turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. I wonder why today in the NFL games that will commence playing in a few hours, no one is going to sit in an end zone of a football stadium and hold up a placard that says Psalm 5-5. Oh, I would love to see America grabbing their Bibles at this new verse. It's no longer John 3-16. They see Psalm 5-5. And so they grab their Bibles. They're in a hotel room and they grab their Gideon Bible and they turn to Psalm 5-5. And this is what they're going to get. And it's a load of truth that they've never heard before. Because the pulpits of America are unfaithful. I want to start with the fourth verse of Psalm 5. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. The fact that he sends his sunshine and his rain in the wicked does not mean that he takes pleasure in their wickedness nor in their lives. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, that is lying. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. The word abhor is another synonym for hate. 
So we have it twice in this passage, once in verse 5, once in verse 6. What a text. Look at those three verses. This is what we believe about God. Today, in our approach to all the attributes of God, we come to His hatred. We can't avoid it. It's one of God's attributes. We don't want to avoid it. We want to delight in it. We want to understand it and rejoice in it as God would have us understand it. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. There'll be no fools in heaven. That's why it says in Revelation chapter 21 that every liar shall have his part in the lake of fire. All the fearful and the unbelieving and sorcerers and whoremongers and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire because God hates all sinners. It says so. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Jesus Christ will say in the last day to the wicked, Depart from me. I never knew you, ye that work iniquity, because he hates all workers of iniquity. You say, but I've been fearful. I've been an unbeliever. I've told a lie. I've been wicked. I've been foolish. And I say to you, why are you bringing that up right now? You need to wait for the second assembly today. But so that you don't have to wait, I'll remind you that all our sins were put on the Lord Jesus Christ. All the sins of sorcery, of unbelief, of lying, of fearfulness, of whoremongering were put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And He paid for them all. And His perfect righteousness was put upon us so that we are accepted in the Beloved. We are not sinners in the sight of God. We are righteous isn't that what the Bible says over and over and over again? Isn't there a clove of cloth, clothing of righteousness put upon us? Doesn't it show us in the book of Revelation clothed in white linen? For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The Lord pulled you out of Psalm 5, 5, and you better thank Him for it. Amen. And you better live for Him. He pulled you out of Psalm 5, 4. And He pulled you out of Psalm 5, 6. You belong in those three verses, and I belong there more than most. But thanks be to God, He loves losers. And He came into this world to save sinners, of whom Paul was chief and me second. I love Him. I love Him for His hatred of sin, because I love Him for the sacrifice that He made for me. I know what I deserve because he ought to hate me. He ought to hate everything about me. I set myself against him. I chose sin rather than righteousness. I tro chose lies rather than truth. I chose devising wicked things rather than devising good things in my head and my heart. He ought to hate me. He's a holy and a righteous king. He's of pure eyes and to behold evil. There's nothing about me that he ought to love. I want you to tell me what he ought to love about me. The fact that I am a sack of water held in by skin, 70% water, that's all corrupting right now, and in just a few years it will stink so bad because it will be dead from corruption of the sin that's in me. What should he love about me? I'll tell you what he loves about me. He loves himself, revealing to the universe that he can love someone as ugly as Jonathan Crosby and choose him in his only begotten son and send that perfect son to die for the wicked rebel so that he could become his son. And that is the gospel. Amen.
It is not that God loves everyone and is trying so desperately hard to save everyone and most won't let them save him. It is that God loved some and did everything necessary for their salvation so that not one can be lost. And that is a doctrine of salvation. That is good news. If you understand for even one second that God loves those in hell as much as he loves you and Jesus Christ died for the sins of those in hell while they're suffering for them as much as He did for you, and the Holy Spirit did as much work on them as He did on you, then what good does it? What good is it? Then you must wonder, how do I know I'm going to heaven? Well, I did this when God's work couldn't get you saved? You got yourself saved? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Amen. Look at Psalm 10.3. Psalm 10.3. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Abhor is a synonym for hate. The Lord abhors the covetous. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple, and it is from God's holiness that his hatred comes. God is holy, therefore he must hate sin and sinners. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. There's no restriction of his power because his throne is on high. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. God sees everything you've ever thought. God sees everything you've ever said. God sees everything you've ever done. And God sees everything you haven't thought that you should have, that you didn't say that you should have, and that you didn't do that you should have. He's seen every sin of omission and commission because he's in his holy temple and his thrones in heaven and his eyes behold the children of men. And here's what it says. The Lord trieth the righteous. That means he chastens us and he defends us according to righteousness. Look at, there's a group of people here described as the righteous. They are the saints of Revelation 14 and verse 12. They are pulled out and made distinct and different. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Their God has a soul in terminology that the Bible wants us to use that hates the wicked. If you want to remember these two verses, it's Psalm 5-5 and Psalm 11-5, and you shouldn't forget them, but they won't be on a placard and in the end zone this afternoon. Because all they can think about is John 3.16 because they want to go and be sodomites. They want to be fornicators. They want to be sorcerers. They want to be able to read the horoscope and not have any consequences. But there are consequences. God hates the wicked. His soul abhors them. His soul hates them. Verse 6, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Look at the distinction between the wicked and the righteous. And it's not because we choose to be upright that makes us upright. God chose to make us upright. And then we live the upright life. But if we're not living that upright life, which is my bottom line and invitation to you today, then you can't say that you're one of the righteous or that you're one of the upright. The only way we can get ourselves into Revelation 14, 12 is to keep the commandments of God and is to hold to the faith of Jesus. God doesn't, God hates sin but hates the sinners. Would you please reconcile that with Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm 11, 5? Would you tell me anywhere where it says God loves sinners? No, I'll help you with that. 
before I finish. Oh, there's more. Psalm 7. I'm trying to keep you close at hand. Psalm 7. Verse 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. God has anger. We haven't even got to that attribute yet. We use terribleness last Lord's Day because God describes Himself as being a terrible God. It's one of His attributes. But God is angry. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Even when He sends that sunshine and that rain, He's angry with the wicked. That does not mean He approves of them or their lifestyle. He is angry with them every day. And again, it is set in contrast with God judgeth the righteous. And when it says God judgeth the righteous, He defends them and upholds them and treats them fairly. And when He does anything to them of a negative sort, it is only His chastening love. Because that just that judgment there is set in distinction from His anger toward the wicked. Matthew chapter 7, I'll quote it to you for the second time. Or let's go and look at it so that you can see it in print in the New Testament, what Jesus Christ said in His Sermon on the Mount. In His Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those are the same ones keeping the commandments of God in Revelation 14 and 12. These are the same ones called the upright in Psalm 5 and Psalm 10 and 11. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. They're still workers of iniquity. The Bible says that the new covenant made in Jesus Christ, which we celebrated last Lord's Day by holding up a cup of wine and saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, quoting our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul explained in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, that where the new covenant is in place, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But he's remembering all the sins and iniquities of this category. And I want you to know that the popes of Rome have a whole department of exorcists thinking that they cast out devils in the name of Jesus. I want you to remember that those followers of the man of sin in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 are described as God turning them over to strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. I want you to understand that that's the same thing as the mark of the beast in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And that is mental and practical living submission to the enemy of Jesus Christ, which is the Roman Catholic Church and its harlot daughters. This is what all of our fathers have believed. Until the mid-1850s when the first idiots began to preach dispensationalism and a premillennial and a pre-tribulationary return of Jesus Christ. And even then, most conservative preachers still held to the old, to the faith once delivered to the saints, but now it's almost lost from the earth. And we want to hold it fast. We want to remember exactly what Jesus said when Jesus said, these things shall come to pass on this generation. He meant it. So Matthew 24, being the great tribulation, is now 2,000 years old. So I guess we're post-tribulationists since Jesus is going to have to come 2,000 years after the tribulation. 
they're so confused about the Bible. They have their little sound bites. They take little boys and hustle them off to Bible college and just brainwash them, then put them out in pulpits where they can preach things that everybody loves to hear, that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. Lord, help us to hold fast Your precious Word. Notice, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Would you explain to me how God loves someone that He never knew? Of course, this word know here cannot mean that He does not know about them. Because God is omniscient, He knows everything about them. So what does the word knew mean here? I never knew you. I never had an affectionate relationship towards you because that's what the word know in the Bible means when it doesn't mean omniscience about God. When it says Adam knew Eve, does that mean they got introduced at a barbecue? Or does that mean that he took her to bed and had an affectionate, intimate relationship with her and Cain was the result? Adam knew his wife Eve. When the Bible says, I have only known you of all the families of the earth about Israel, does that mean all the other nations he had no idea of what they were doing? Or does it mean he had a personal affectionate relationship toward Israel which he didn't have toward the other nations? That's from Amos chapter 3, the first three verses. I never knew you. The hatred of God. I never knew you get out of my sight. And he'll cast them into the lake of fire where their smoke of the torment will rise forever and ever as we read earlier. Look at Romans chapter 9 and you can read about a a particular individual that God hated. Romans 9 and verse 13, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God hated Esau and God loved Jacob. On what basis? Okay, thank you. Verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, therefore Jacob didn't earn God's love, and Esau didn't earn God's hatred, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, and this is from Malachi chapter 1, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God for God hating Esau and loving Jacob? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The compassion of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God is entirely by His choice upon certain men. And verse 17 and 18 are going to tell us, And whom He will, He hardeneth. The last clause of verse 18. It is God's will that chooses to have mercy on some and hatred and hardness toward others. It is he that took the same lump of clay and made vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Things he loved, things he hated. And it's only his long suffering that keeps them alive in this world. They are called vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And if I've got my hands mixed up to you, forgive me and just keep the words straight because that's what the Lord gave us. He didn't tell me whether to use my left hand or my right hand for either of those. But this is the word of the Lord. It's according to the purpose of election. According to verse 11 that explains verse 13 for us. Anyone chosen Jesus Christ was chosen there before the foundation of the world and God has loved us with an everlasting love. Somebody will say, but I just think that God loved Esau a little bit less than He loved Jacob. 
Well, when you read down through that passage, that little difference in God's love sure makes a big difference to them, doesn't it? Because those that He loves a little bit less suffer for eternal torment in hell. Why don't we come over to Malachi chapter 1 and see if it says that. That God loved Esau just a little bit less. Do I know that the Bible says love and hate in an absolute and a relative sense? Absolutely. It says that Jacob hated Leah in Genesis about 29.31, but that's explained in Genesis 29.30 as loving her less and not loving her like he loved Rachel. So there we have a relative sense, and that's why we rightly divide the word of truth, or we end up in all sorts of trouble. I know that Jesus said, if a man come to me and does not hate his wife, then he cannot be my disciple, and yet he tells husbands to love their wives. So that's a relative sense. But let's see if there's a relative sense when God hates all workers of iniquity. You know, when it's a relative sense, it means that we still love our wives and we love them very much and we love them more than the world loves their wives. But we love God more than we love our wives. But when God hates the wicked, He torments them forever and ever and ever. And the smoke of their torment and the fierceness of the wrath of the winepress of Almighty God is trampled and they are trampled under it. Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, verse 1. Now verse 2, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, those are the descendants of Esau, we are impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Now you want to tell me that's loving them a little bit less? The people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. And that is exactly what we should be saying right now. The Lord will be magnified from the border of election. Because it is election that makes all the difference and it magnifies the Lord by separating us out from the group that He righteously and purely and holily hates. I could show you another nation that God hates and He spoke of in the same way and it's called Amalek. God hath indignation against the Amalek forever. He never forgot it. He never forgot what they did to Israel on their way out of Egypt. And 500 years later, he told Saul, it is time. I have had indignation against them for 500 years. Now go kill every single one of them. Men, women, suckling infants, ox, ass, everything they have. Slaughter it and wipe it out. But of course, God loved Amalek just a little bit less than he loved Israel. in the minds of the heretics that occupy 99.99% of the pulpits of America, they're totally wrong. I'll look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Help me bring this to a close by believing the things that I'm preaching to you. Lest I have to go another couple hours. I'm prepared to, but I don't want to. There's more attributes of God I want to get to. I want us to delight in this one, and I want us to delight in others. I love this attribute. It saved me from a false religion. It saved me from another Jesus. It saved me from another spirit. 
another gospel that doesn't tell this good news, that Jesus will lose none of them. That's good news. Psalm 139, verse 21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. Now I want to ask you who's writing here. It says in my Bible that it's a Psalm of David. Do you believe that it's a Psalm of David? Let's, let's hope that we all believe it's a Psalm of David. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. What do we know about David? He's the man after God's own heart. When David writes like this, he's expressing the heart of God. He's expressing God. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And then he asked God to search him and see that his heart is pure. And he said that in the face of telling the Lord that he hated the Lord's enemies. This psalm is full of his praise to God, and his praise to God runs all the way through the 22nd verse because he hated the enemies of God, and you should as well. This is not the only place this is described in the Bible, but it's the only one we have time for now. I want you to know that when you befriend the wicked that God hates, you're in trouble. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 2. One of the four greatest kings of Judah was Jehoshaphat. The four great kings of Judah are David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Those are the four greatest kings. There are things said about them said of no other kings. But this is Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 19, verse 1, And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. That's a prophet. And he said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. This is a great king, and this story is a wonderful thing to read, and you ought to go get yourself some Bible tool that will show you the passages of Scripture about this man's life. But this man, though there were good things in his life, and though he was one of the four best kings of Judah and a great-grandson of David, look what it says of him. Though there are good things, why are you helping the ungodly? And why are you loving those that hate the Lord? You should be hating them, and you shouldn't be helping them. And who is this person that he befriended, and how did he befriend him? The person is Ahab, the Baal-worshipping king of Israel, because he married his son Jehoram to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. This is marriage out of the Lord, though it's marriage in the church. It's called making affinity with Ahab. Verse 1 of chapter 18, look at it. Second Chronicles 18.1, this is how serious our God is about love and hatred. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. Do you know what affinity means? It means to bring two families together by marriage. This is not marrying high on the spiritual scale of those that fear and love God. That's the most important thing for you as parents and as children. God is angry with the wicked every day, and so should we be. If you're a friend of the world, then you're an enemy of God. James 4.4 4. You know, if you want to study the hatred of God, then you can consider synonyms like abhor, abominate, loathe, anger, wrath, fury, all those positive, active attributes of God and descriptors of His nature are found throughout the Bible. What examples do you need? Do you need to think about Eden? 
Do you know what God did for one rebel that raised up his fist against God and ate the fruit that he was forbidden to eat? He cast a race of people, a species, into everlasting fire called the second death for that one sin. How many men have lived since the creation of Adam? 50 billion? 70 billion? 90 billion? They would all burn forever in the lake of fire were it not for the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord to save some of them. That's how much God hates sin. Can you even comprehend what I just said? God hates that little tiny minor sin of eating a piece of fruit off a tree so much that He would consign every descendant of Adam and Eve to physical death, spiritual death, and the second death of torment in the lake of fire. That is holiness. That is hatred of sin and sinners. To be able to do that. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves before Thee and know that we are as sinful as anyone. When you look at the flood, and I asked you to consider it last night for those of you who chose that option for devotions. Was there a smiley face outside the ark saying, smile, Jesus loves you. As they were suffocated to death in the waters of the flood. I remember hearing that when I was 19 years old for the first time. It washed over me like a, like a tsunami of fresh water. I know where I was. I know that it was a man filling a pulpit and probably not doing something that pleased his master. And I was just a little 19-year-old boy, but it washed over me and refreshed my soul that there was a God in heaven that made sense. No, he didn't have any such life ring hanging outside the ark. God shut that door so that no one could get in. Do you think he shut the door so that Noah couldn't get out? Do you think Noah and his family were trying to get out? Do you think they were clawing on the gopher wood on the inside trying to get out? Afraid of being dry? Afraid of having to feed animals for a year? I know there was gopher wood under the fingernails of many. If there had been a forensic study done of all those that died in the vicinity of where that ark was put together, they had gopher wood under their fingernails. This is the truth of God's Word. You can read Genesis 6-9 through and just talk about it being 450 feet long and this and that and they didn't have to take full-grown elephants. They could have taken baby elephants. Then they had elephants on the other end. They didn't have to have 12,000-pound elephants in there. They could have had 500-pound elephants. and done. You could talk all about that stuff. It's, it's really quite worthless. In this sense, that the real lesson is that God is angry with the wicked every day, and His anger involves His hatred, and His hatred drowned the earth. And He didn't care if you were 20 years old 120 years old or 20 days old. It didn't make one bit of difference to him. That just shocks people because they have no concept of reality. A 20-day-old baby has no more value than a 20-year-old young man. In fact, I'd say something beyond that, but I won't because it'd probably bother your simple little minds. The Lord doesn't recognize any difference whatsoever. Do you know what? We're all guilty for Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, every single one of us. That's why Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 can say that death reigned even over those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Did Joshua and Moses prepare the people with leaflets before they came across the Jordan River to tell the Canaanites God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and for your houses, your vineyards, your wells, and your furniture? Because God had a wonderful plan for their lives. 
their wells, their furniture, their cities, and their furniture. He was going to take their lives and give all their stuff to his people. You say, well, I just can't imagine that. Well, imagine it this way. God loved his church, and God hated the wicked. It's that simple. It explains it all. All of a sudden, the Bible takes on fresh, wonderful meaning that is consistent throughout. It's logical. It all makes sense. It can all be tied together. It's beautiful. You say, but it's never beautiful to me about thinking of God hating anyone. That's because you are not holy and you don't care about God's commandments and you don't care about His worship. That is the only reason you would ever think those thoughts. Because if you had any love of God, you would hate His enemies, just like David said in Psalm 139. And you would not have a problem with that doctrine. God's hatred of the wicked exalts and glorifies Him to us and enhances His particular love for His people. Oh, now His love takes on a whole different sense. If God loves everybody indiscriminately, His love is no better than a whore or a prostitute. A prostitute, cheap prostitute in the bad part of town, you hardly even want to go there. Probably nails and tacks in the street, but for 20 bucks you can get an I love you. You say, that's you're bordering on blasphemy the way you're talking. Here's what the Bible says. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. If Christ loved everyone, including the church, then I ought to love all women the way I love my wife, but include her. Should we start down that road? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. God hates, Jesus Christ hates all workers of iniquity. He's the one that's going to cast them into hell and say, I never knew you. But do you know what he's going to remember about you? Everything you've done that you've forgotten. He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He's going to remember when you gave a cup of cold water to a disciple in his name only. He's going to remember everything about you and he's going to know you and he's love you. He's going to tell you to enter into the presence of the Lord into his joy forever. The Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. He draws us to Christ so that we believe on him. He is wonderful from beginning to end. His love is so precious because it is seen in the light of his hatred for sinners. We appreciate a glorious king that hates his enemies and a creator that despises rebel sinners. Every time you see compromise in authority, we see it every time we look at the Drudge Report or read a newspaper about what's happening in our nation, either locally or nationally, Every time you see compromise in authority or compromise in character, remember Jehovah has perfect hatred toward those enemies. The judges may not execute our nation's laws against criminals the way they should be, but there's a God in heaven that has a law that he always executes accurately, and he hates the wicked. When there's some menace to society that comes before the God of heaven, he hates them and despises them, he abhors them and abominates them, and he casts them into an eternal fire. He's angry with the wicked every single day. He doesn't feel sorry for them, not even on his best day or their best day. Because his days never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every time you see human good or evil, God rewards them both. He rewards the upright with the smile of his countenance, and he rewards the wicked with his judgment and justice. God's hatred enhances his love. If he loves those in hell, I've said this several times now, it still overwhelms my mind that there are people that claim to be alive that think God loves those in hell as much as he loves those in heaven. 
The Bible says you cannot be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. They say God loved them so much, these the people in hell, that he sent his only begotten son to be their savior. He, God loved them so much that he sent Jesus Christ to save them. So that's the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet Paul said we cannot be separated from it, yet they're all separated from it in their theology. God hates all those in hell because they're the wicked and Jesus Christ did not pay for their sins and therefore they are still looked upon as sinners. And they were willing sinners every day of their lives and their representative, the first Adam, was a sinner for them in the Garden of Eden. My brethren, we should have this trait in our lives because we should think and act and pray and feel the way that David did in Psalm 139 by hating those that hate God. If you are holy as God is holy, then you're going to hate sin and sinners considered as such. Look at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. I'm almost done. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. Remember, this is a transferable or a communicable or a participatory attribute of God, which means that we ought to have some of it transferred to us. We ought to participate in it. And God has communicated it to us by our new man. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. That's wisdom speaking in Proverbs chapter 8. That's what every person that is wise speaks like and talks like. This is Solomon speaking to us. This is David. This is the Holy Spirit. And this is how we ought to think. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If we fear God, we're going to hate evil. If we fear God and love God, then we're going to hate His enemies, as I've already shown to you from Psalm 139, which is not the only place that it's shown, but it's the only one that I have time for today. If you're holy, as God is holy, then you'll hate sin. You want to be like David and hate the enemies of God. Look at Psalm 31 and verse 6. I'll show you one of them. Another one of them. Psalm 31 and verse 6. O Lord, let us have this attribute upon ourselves, that we will be as holy as Thou art holy, and that we will hate sin and wickedness as much as Thou hatest it, and that we will hate the workers of iniquity and the enemies of God as much as You hate them. And Heavenly Father, teach us how to love our personal enemies. I hope you understand that when the Bible says love your enemies, it's talking about our personal enemies that do things to offend us. That's no crime in the universe. I don't care what they do to me or my wife. Anything that somebody can do against me is a personal enemy of mine, and I am to love them. I am to pray for them. I am to forgive to forgive them, and I am to do good for to them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. That has nothing to do in that passage with the enemies of God. It has to do with our enemies. If somebody smacks me in the cheek, I'm going to give them the other cheek. If they take a coat, I'm going to give them a cloak. Psalm 31 and verse 6. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. That's what it says. Now, are you like David or are you not like David? I want to be just like David. I have hated them that regard lying vanities. Those that believe false doctrine, those that worship idols, they're following vanity, and we ought to hate them. Brethren, the highest calling we have is to make our calling and election sure. The highest duty that we have is to make our calling and election sure. We should lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should recognize and repent and tell the Lord that if I were viewed outside the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm no different than the wicked and the foolish and the abominable of Psalm 5, of Psalm 10, of Psalm 11, and of every other place that's been written. I would easily have bowed down and given my forehead to the mark of the beast in my right hand. I would worship, I would have worshiped him in his image. 
Oh Lord, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. I lay hold of him by faith. He alone is the Son of God. He's my Savior. I love him. I will love you and serve you forever. Thank you for saving me. Have mercy upon me, O God, with your head to the earth and beating your breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and make your calling and election sure, and then add to that faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and charity. As Second Peter chapter 1 says, For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, but an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then you're the keepers of the commandments of God. You're the keepers of the faith of Jesus. Because you've made your calling and election sure. No wonder it tells us in that passage, give all diligence to the task. Give all diligence. Because I'll tell you, if you've got a thinking mind today in this assembly, and we've accused those of outside it of not having thinking minds, but if you have a thinking mind, then we better close our Bibles at the end of this sermon, which is now ending, and commit ourselves to keeping the commandments of God. And keeping the faith of Jesus. And laying hold of Him by faith. And running with that faith. And following our conviction. And changing our lives. And sacrificing those things that are displeasing in His sight. Lest we show that the wrath of God abides on us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. But there is no salvation by mere faith. For there's going to be many calling upon His name in the great day of judgment. Lord, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Perfect consistency with Revelation 14, 12. They keep the commandments of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. May you love the God that has hatred as one of his attributes. And may you be thankful that what's coming after our break is the love of God toward his people. So distinct. In such a great contrast from that hatred, may Jesus Christ be glorified and praised. Amen.